week. Daisy and I are separated by the great wall of COVID. Uh, so we're in different houses today. So you might hear a little bit of difference in the sound quality. But uh, this is Radio Zaza, uh, short for Radio Zaddy, the home of queer queer times for queer people. <laughs> Let's try and re-queer our history. Um, I was saying, to the, uh, saying the other day, actually, I met up with, with a friend um, and they were like, I, I briefly mentioned that you and I were going to be recording, Daisy. Mm. And I, they were like, "Oh, uh, what are you going to be recording? Uh, what's what are you doing?" And I was like, "Oh, it's 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 on queer stuff." And they were like, "Oh, okay, cool." And I kind of realised that actually, is is it's a bit of a, a reclaiming of history for mm. me because I don't, I wasn't really taught very much at all in history about queer people, about queer culture, about our um, the struggles that people have gone through, yeah. other than just like. It was pretty shit, and now it's slightly less shit. That's all they really taught us. And Oscar Wilde was a raging homo. I did, le- I did learn that. The English teachers like to let you know. But yeah, it wasn't... There's um... lot, yeah, there's a lot of negative press, isn't there? Um, well, I guess when we were at school, you know, Section 28, we weren't allowed uh, to learn about it. Yeah. It was legally uh, prohibited for teachers in the, uh, in the 90s to, to teach you know yeah yeah there was a whole thing a whole um thing in in Thatcher's government where she made it illegal for anybody to teach or quote promote queer and gay lifestyles in mm. school so there's a real taboo about it and i think that does have have a lot of layover you know but yeah how are you doing days yeah i'm not too bad um i'm realizing how much of a dinosaur i am uh having to get up to speed on all the different uh tech platforms um yeah yeah I've had a day of it as well I've been um I've been on client calls for work and various different online forums you know zoom versus teams versus you know webex and um and now whatsapp and it's just (laughs) it's so annoying when you're flipping between all these different systems like as much as it can be you know you can get used to them after a while and flipping between but like Mm. oh there's so many different platforms to use um and they all do things in a slightly different way you kind of lose people on um in between meetings sometimes yeah have you ever found this have you ever lost someone have you ever kind of been on one page and then yeah, yeah. you can't so, find your zoom meeting because you're sharing you're sharing a spreadsheet on another platform and then there's someone trying to dial in on slack and you just it's too messy <laughs> you know we've already had the episode quite, yeah. the episode where i talk about my fear of teenagers but i think really it's not it's not the fault of the youth it's me isn't it i'm just i'm the problem you're right, Daisy. You are the problem. <laughs> You're the problem. Oh, I forgot to say, um, I'm Hannah Bestwick and that is J- Daisy TG, Hello. Uh, Thurston Gent. And we're going to be teaching you some more queer things today. Um, actually, today I'm following on from what I did uh, last time, which was last time I talked about Master P. Johnson, who was a um, very important, very influential person in the queer liberation and LGBT activism um, scene, especially in the USA. And um, so this week, what I thought I would do is carry on that and actually go into more detail about the Stonewall Uprising and the Stonewall Riots. Perfect. Um, so I'm sure you've heard the the word Stonewall or the term Stonewall. It's actually the name of, of a huge organisation at the moment, uh, sorry, that's, that's uh, in operation at the moment, which works with companies and institutions and things to kind of um, help improve their diversity and inclusion in the uh, in the business in in their ranks basically and you'll also have, you'll you'll have seen um t-shirts that say things like some people are gay get over it or like get used to it mm-hmm. uh, some people are bi trans whatever um and that's that's from them but the stonewall uh, organization gets its name from the stonewall in which is where a very famous riots or an uprising happened in june of 1969 uh, the riots were said to have led to uh, are said to have led to an incredible change in the pace of LGBT liberation, and the first ever Pride Parade was held the following year, and it was at the time called Christopher Street Liberation Day, which was um, after Christopher Street, which Stonewall was on. So, um, just to start off, throughout the 60s, there was a really huge surge in counterculture. Um, so at the time, there was a lot of movement. People were finding voices to challenge a norm on a scale much larger than it had been experienced before. So there was the, you know, there was the birth of feminism, um, black, the black community's struggle um, and the civil rights movement. Um, there was a lot of anti-Vietnam war things going on as well. So, they, you know, there was, that's not all of them, but, you know, there was a lot of counterculture movements going on. Hippies um, were part of that as well. People were unsettled. Yeah, exactly. It was an un- unsettled. It was volatile, destabilizing. And it was it was a very interesting time. Uh, so we have to mention a couple of um, things before we get to the Stonewall riots um there was a 
you know, there was all this civil rights movement um, that was beginning to sort of pick up a lot of pace, um, having sit-ins and things like that. And in uh, 1965, there was a protest at the Dewey's lunch counter in Philadelphia where, the L- where LGBT people demanded to have access and demanded to be served in this, um, this restaurant where they weren't normally allowed, allowed to eat or to dine. Mm. Um, and it was this, this sit-in um, was the first of its kind in Philadelphia and one of the first um, of the LGBT community. Um, the first in, and one of the earliest in the US um, of this of a kind of sit-in. There was a lot lots going on, including you know sit-ins from other organisations, other movements, other, uh, lots of protests in different forms. Um, a lot of which re- uh, revolved around refusing to leave somewhere where people weren't allowed to be because of who they were. Okay, so it's a lot of like gaining access to space and things like that. Yeah. And at, at, in this time, in the sort of mid in the sixties, queer people didn't really have anywhere to go or to be themselves. There was no, you know, there's no safe spaces, and there were re- refused service in establishments. Um, if you were suspected of being gay, and you could even be arrested for being disorderly if you were gay and being served alcohol. Just just for drinking and being a gay person, that was considered being disorderly, wow. which is unbelievable. That's ridiculous. I mean, yeah, we would have gone to prison and served life sentences many times over. Oh I think. Oh my god, <laughs> I would have been I would have been so arrested so many times. So as a result of kind of this oppression, there was just a handful of gay bars in um, Greenwich in New York, um, New York City, um, and gay bars that people knew operated very discreetly. Okay, and there was only only a few around. Uh, but in in New York, okay, so the the New York State Liquor Authority penalised and shut down establishments that served alcohol to known or suspected LGBT in- individuals. <laughs> so even if you know if they if you manage to find a bar that would serve you, um, the state liquor authority would come and find that part that bar and raid it and shut it down, arguing that the mere gathering of homosexual people was disorderly in itself. Okay, so regardless of what you do, so bars were sort of penalised as well for for sort of encouraging or tolerating. Yeah, yeah, for tolerating, tolerating. Yeah, not even encouraging, just tolerating more than one homosexual person near each other. That's you know that was regarded as disorderly. So then in 1966, members of the um, Mattachine Mattachine Society or Mattachine, I think, an organisation which was dedicated to gay rights, um, saved, uh, staged what they called a sip in. Okay, so like a sit-in, but it was a sip-in, and they went round to bars in Greenwich and op- and declared their sexuality, um, daring staff to kind of refuse them in order for them to to then uh, stage their protest. So in the establishments where they were refused, they staged a sip-in where they just um, would not leave until they were served, hmm. uh, refusing to leave the establishment even when asked because they were known homosexuals. And they, so they, they then sued these, they sued the establishments, okay? They sued the establishments, establishments that were refusing them service, which I did, you know, because it was it was legal to arrest people for being disorderly for being gay, but they, regardless of that, you know, they managed to sue these establishments and, in, and the uh, Commission on Human Rights ruled that gay individuals do have the right to be served in bars. Hmm. Okay, so they should be allowed to be served, and so police raids temporarily reduced on these on bars, suspected gay bars. Sort of conflicting. Yeah, so it was. It's a really strange kind of volatile. Un, like I think it would just be a really confusing time because it's like, well, you know, the Commission on Human Rights says I have rights, and yet I'm still being oppressed and, and refused service because just because the human commission on human rights says you know you have the right to be served that doesn't mean that everyone immediately changes and is like oh okay well they said that so i'm going to change everything about my behavior towards gay people that's not how it works <laughs> it takes time for people's opinions and, and sort of attitudes to change um but they did okay so regardless of the fact that their rage reduced a little bit they did start up again Mm. And because it then became illegal to engage in any gay behaviour in public. That's holding hands, kissing or dancing with someone of the same sex. So just, you know, being a bit too gay would get you arrested. So the raid started up again in uh, on these bars that were allowing gay people to come around, uh, mm. come in and get served. So in line with the... 
not in line with, that's completely the wrong word, in opposition to the Human Rights Commission saying that gay people should get served, the New York Liquor Authority, New York State Liquor Authority, began just refusing to grant liquor licenses to bars that were intended to be gay bars. So they knew that, like, okay, fine, we're going to be forced to allow gay people to be served, but what we're going to do then is just make it completely impossible for gay bars to operate legally and therefore we will have a legitimate reason to shut them to raid them and to shut them down okay so they could really target the gay bars because they they already knew they wouldn't have licenses because they refused to uh, to give them which is such a like such a re- I don't know it's just a really shitty thing to do obviously they were just trying to like find any reason to to oppress just to make it impossible and yeah they just it's just so hideously violent and vile and like oppressive to to queer people um, they were trying to get them, you know, they were just trying to rule out gay bars, okay, yeah. and to make the police raids all above board. Okay, so where does the Stonewall fit into this? The Stonewall was operating without a liquor license, okay, that was a given because it was a queer bar, but mm-hmm. it was owned by members of the Genovese uh, crime family, the Mafia. <laughs> Yeah, they bought, of course. Well, like, it's a really weird thing. So they bought it in 1966, and it had been a straight bar. But in um, 1967, Tony Loria, aka Fat Tony, which I think is the name of the mafia guy in The Simpsons. Fat Tony, yeah. uh, He took it over, and then he decided to turn it into a gay bar. Now, it's not, like, I can't, I can't find out, like, why. Why did he do this? I think so. It, I think some people were suggesting, like, oh, well, maybe it's because they um, saw a potential market there. You know, there was an underserved audience. But mm-hmm. I don't. I don't really believe that it was that kind of. I don't believe the of... mafia are trying to improve their DNI rating. Really. <laughs> <laughs> well, like maybe, like I don't know. I just think that I don't think that they would. They had this bar to operate to make money. What I like, mm. I'm slightly suspicious of the fact that this bar made any money because, like, I'll come on to it in a bit. Like, there was no investment in it as a place. The, the you know, the charges were really low mm. and the drinks were like watered down. I don't think the, the bar itself was making money. So, I think that what they were doing was they were making it a gay bar, which would mean that most people wouldn't want to go in. There wouldn't be people just like coming around to check the establishment. Mm. and they paid off the police yeah and they could pay off the i was going to ask about the bribery (laughs) where that would come in exactly so they paid off the police to reduce the raids and maybe they maybe they were doing that because you know and because they were a gay bar they were like oh we're just paying you off because we don't have a liquor license and that's why it is but maybe there was something like i don't know some money laundering going through or some bootlegging or something like that going through it some other shady business yeah, exactly. But they were just operating as a queer bar, as a kind of almost like a front. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm completely wrong, but that's my my sus- my suspicion. But yeah, like I said, so the reason I don't think it was a money making operation, and and therefore I don't think it was actually looking for an underserved market. It was that the you know the operating costs were very low. There was bare walls. There was no fire exit. There was coloured lights, poss- probably to like hide gross bits of the walls and things. And there was no running water behind the bar to wash any of the cups or anything, <laughs> or to even drink. The toilets would break and like overflow and um, things like that. And they just had one singular bouncer on the door who would only let you in if you were visibly gay or already known. Mm. And you only had to pay $3 to get in and you got two drinks tokens with that. And that's, you know, that was, you know, it's not much for a struggling LGBT person to um to cough up um especially as a lot of people were struggling with homelessness mm-hmm. um and $3 was a was an affordable entry to find some place to get out of the cold or the heat and just have fun, dance, kiss, get a bit yeah. raunchy spend and a, you know spend a night yeah because there were other other queer there were other gay establishments but they were like gay restaurants where you'd have to sort of sit down and they would have primarily just catered to like white cis quite straight like straight looking gay men i think rather than the stonewall which was for all races ages they did have underage people going in which is you know not not always a great thing but 
they were they were un- homeless kids usually that just needed somewhere for a few hours to be safe and that was a place where people found that kind of haven mm. and it was you know it was a refuge and the world was you know it was bitter and it was it was an unlo- unloving world yes. to lgbt people um, especially lgbt people of color at this time yeah. and the stone wall was a place to kind of get away from that it definitely sounds more of a necessity rather than um you know maybe a desired location at first you know yeah yeah and I think it really was I think it was like it was the place you could go and so it became it became home because of that not that it was a place that everyone managed like yeah I think it was like you said necessity first and then became a home so let me let me, let me take you on to like the, the actual day of it so on June 28th 1969 there was about 200 people at Stonewall just like having a good time doing what you do at a bar drinking dancing whatever so normally the bar owners would get a heads up when there was going to be a raid and right. they would tell the customers you know scamper like you know make a break for it guys um but this time there was no warning and some people were saying that maybe the mafia had forgotten to pay them off on time uh, but no one really knows why the raid happened because actually there had been a raid just a few days before already so this was kind of like they shouldn't have been due one for a while if they were running on their sli- slightly reduced raids Um, that they were getting because they were paying off the police. Mm. But whatever happened, um, at at 1.20am in the morning, the police came uh, came to raid the Stonewall Inn. Employees and customers kind of, you know, they knew the drill because it would happen happen anyway, even though they were paying off the the police. The police had to still do some raids to keep up appearances. So they all all went outside, they all lined up and waited to be um, checked by the police. And they would do just like really dehumanising things. They would check their gender by by groping, by taking them to the bathroom to confirm if their ID matched their, like, true gender, especially, like, men in dresses and lesbians who were butch. Like, it was a really horrible time. And normally people would just sort of take it knowing that, you know, okay, they're going to change, they're going to check my ID and I'll just, I'll just go, I'll just go home after this. But this time, like, it just seemed that people had been pushed to their limits. Like, they just had enough and they were sick of it. Yeah, I mean, after 16 days worth of of raids and you know interrogation you just think yeah you just right yeah exactly if that was your like you're in the middle of this kind of counterculture you're hearing about protests and riots and things happening elsewhere you're feeling oppressed maybe dealing with homelessness in a world where like you're refused service refused to entry into establishments because you don't you don't fit in you don't look right you've been rejected by your family and the police are raiding the one place that you find safety in that's that's going to tip you over the edge. And so the patrons, like the, the people who were there that evening, some refused to hand over their IDs or refused to go with the police to get, quote, checked. Some were were released, you know, after the quick identity uh, check, uh, those who looked like their ID or whatever. Mm. Um, but instead of going home like normal, this time they stayed. And then a crowd started to gather. And then passers-by started to stop by uh, and stay and stood around. And then everyone started harassing the police, okay? So the group started mocking, yelling, like, doing fake salutes, femming, like, over-expressing over, um, over campness. Mm. And then they they sort of overcame the, the sort of oppressive shame that the officers often bring with them. And they started, yeah, just, like, really shouting back, pushing back. And the officers started pushing people over um, pushing like bundling them into vans and things and the the stonewallers i'm going to call them uh, started pushing back to the police and as a result like the tensions really started to escalate and the police who you know started to realize that they were losing control of the situation became increasingly violent they were confiscating the alcohol and like loading up the vans and then f- there was this one moment where this a lesbian called Stormy Delavery, um, who's really interesting, actually. Um, I, I recommend going and, and looking her up. Um, so she was being thrown into the kind of the police wagon mm. in handcuffs and she shouted out to the onlookers, why don't you guys do something? And so they did. They began to throw rocks, bottles, like bricks, anything they could find at the police. They tried to tip over the vans. Mm. And at one point, apparently, they began to throw pennies at the police, trying to pay them off, you know, because because of the, the kind of idea that the mafia maybe hadn't paid them off in time and the police 
escalated their force um, but the crowd just kept growing and growing as people saw what was going on and started supporting the movement you know um, mm. you can totally picture it can't you I mean all the images from that day it looks you know so physical and oh yeah and, and especially recently you know with the Black Lives Matters movements you can see that just like the police when they don't think they have control actually even in, in certain circumstances where they do know they have control but they they just completely can lose it can lose control and really become very violent because they're in armor and they have weapons and so really mm. they should be way more controlled than the crowds but it seems like here they just they just started giving back what they were getting and that's not okay when you're the supposed to be an enforcement officer you know and um, you're supposed to mm. maintain control in yourself but yeah like the moment of control is le- is lost as soon as you have to take someone by the arm or, or grab someone or bundle someone into a van you know yeah exactly and as soon as you start acting rashly or, or like doing things um spur of the moment you've lost control of yourself and then you will lose control of the situation but um so in um oh yeah okay so they they the police who were there grabbed some of the handcuffs pa- handcuffed patrons and then went back into the Stonewall Inn and tried to barricade themselves in. And then somebody set the building on fire. Now, they don't know if the crowd set the building on fire what? because the police were in it or if the police set it on fire from the inside to try and get attention and get people away from it. But the, when the police were inside, apparently they were just trashing the place anyway, you know, like breaking chairs and things. So it might have just mm. been an act of destruction, you know, from these these officers who'd lost control. But we don't, we don't know, okay? We don't know who set the fire. And then, like, riot police started to arrive so in there you know with the big shields and heavy helmets and things and just started like trying to force the crowd back but by this time the crowd was huge so huge and so confident that they start they like made this showgirl kick line you know when they like kick the knee up and then kick the leg out full and one way and then they do it the other way like and just like dancing in front of the police and the police just felt humiliated they they were they've been so utterly humiliated and overpowered and they used an incredible amount of force and by about 4am they'd managed to get back control of the situation by really using heavy violence and the riot gear and everything they ripped everything Mm. down and destroyed the inn and made and there was 13 arrests and some people were even hospitalized it was really bad but regardless okay regardless of that day the protests continued Someone spray painted on the on the on the inn, drag power, legalized gay bars, like we are open, all on the burnt out inn, you know, the shell of the building. Um mm. and the doors opened and people, you know, began standing around in the thousands. It so it started on the twenty eighth, but in the very early hours of the morning, at like one AM, yep. like I mentioned. So this is in the actual day of the twenty eighth, but it feels like a whole extra day because of all of the the stuff that happened overnight. So that same day there was more rioting and the, the police came again. Again, but this time they even use like they use riot gear again but also tear gas they use tear gas oh, on God. the on the crowds and over the next several nights activists continued to gather near the stonewall inn and actually used this it was really cool so what they did was they took this opportunity where everyone was gathered together you know because at that, at that time there'd been no opportunity to be gathered in such, such numbers before because they, you were all in tiny little pockets bars because it was illegal to be gay and be near other gay people so this opportunity yeah the more people there's more of a risk isn't it yeah more of a risk so this opportunity meant that you know people could spread information make connections there was like gay networking built up like a much stronger community around this a proper march yeah exactly and so that was kind of a really important moment of collaboration and opportunity for people to um create a community that was more than just these little pockets um, there was, you know, there was some not very nice news coverage. It was quite homophobic over the next month or so. But regardless, like the newspapers that did post homophobic content, there was protests outside their um, their establishments and things like that. And this this moment and this um, joining up of communities and the support um, that was shown for the queer community in this kind of in this uprising led to a mm. real a real change in the pace of of LGBT liberation across like the US and also it had implications across the world. Yeah, definitely. And so the following year, on the twenty eighth of June, 
1970, exactly one year later from that, they had this Christopher Street Liberation Day, okay, and that was one year to the day, and that was the street that Stonewall Inn was on, and it was a liberation march, a celebration of what had happened that day, and an expression of of the anger that was felt, and the, the change that had been made as a result of people coming together, and they had, and that was the very first Pride Parade, and it had uh, Marsha P. Johnson, who was mentioned in the last uh, last episode, uh, marching at the helm, uh, leading forwards uh, for the rest of the LGBT movement. It was really, yeah, so that's... Uh, Perfect. Yeah, I think it's an incredible, incredible story. A lot of, a lot yeah, of pain. Yeah, you can totally picture it, can't you? It kind of sends, you know, shivers down your spine to imagine it. Mm. Um, and as you say, like, the repercussions that followed, you know, obviously gay people have and LGBT people have existed you know centuries and centuries before that but i feel like that is a really grounding moment as you say in modern lgbt history Mm. that everybody should know about and um every year commemorating it yeah and it is it's like a real thing a real moment in time that you can you can pinpoint and say this had repercussions for the for where we are today that this really impacted where we are today and it was it was the result of this repressed community the most marginalized people within the lgbt community as well standing up and finally saying you know we've had enough and what was um, actually amazing to me was so i um i forgot to mention my sources so i used sources from history.com um an episode of my favorite murder also covered this and um an article by time magazine um, and one by the atlantic but the pictures of the people who were hanging out at at stonewall inn they look so young it's so amazing mm-hmm. to me how young they were. Like maybe that's maybe that's normal, and I'm just old. But the the they look like kids, and it it looks like yeah. it was you know kids and adults all together like pushing forwards for the same agenda. But I was just amazed at kind of the range of ages of people there. I mean, as you say, like this is people's you know refuge this is people's safe space um and you know grotty as it may have been um it, it you know it was it was the place where they you know it was the only place where people could go and it was a, a welcoming space just because it was open and as you say like you know affordable and mm. um there's you know if you've got nowhere else to go why wouldn't you you know fight for that place to to remain you know safe and yeah and you would you would fight because yeah to stand to stay out all night you can just sort of picture it you know and to gather you know people who just who won't go home until they've got you know got justice and mm, mm. you and know we've all stayed out all night for for far you know less reasons um or far less important yeah, reasons um, yeah definitely <laughs> and i just think that like if that's all you have then you you will fight to the end because you if you lose that you've got nothing left to lose and that's you know that's your place your home um, and yeah, so you're going to fight, fight for your civil you're going to fight like an animal civil liberties to keep it yeah and and like yeah uh, that's you know that's something that the police underestimated is how hard people will fight for their safety and so you're just going to fight yeah. you're going to fight to the end you know it's it's dignity and it's it's your humanity it's not just about you know your freedom it's about your right to exist as a person and mm. that is such a huge thing to fight for um, yeah. and i don't think we necessarily I think you know sometimes as queer people we do we forget that you know you know that's been done and mm. you know that happened great but I think there's we always teeter on the you know the idea that it could be taken away yeah um, yeah and that is scary and I think you know you can there's always going to be oppressive impress oppressive like law enforcements and things yeah. can get revoked and I think you f- you forget that and it's important to continue the struggle and to continue the fight. Yeah. Yeah, um, it is. And it's important. It is important. It's so important to keep that fight going because we've said it before, like we're not free till everyone's free and we still need to fight even today. So yeah, that was just, you know, I wanted to cover that um, in as much detail as I could in the time that we have, but there's, there's so much more out there to, to read about, especially about other movements that were going on at the same time, like really do take the time to, to, um, to look them up it's really really fascinating history our history as well quite a yeah. quite a eventful evening mm, <laughs> to yeah. be you know event eventful few weeks and um you know what you know what a riot it it was and that's kind of the spirit of what pride should be mm, mm. really isn't it yeah just remembering the history and remembering you know the fight yeah that, that led to the celebration 
Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you for that. Thanks so much for the uh, the history lesson. Um, I'm also going to talk to you a little bit about uh, some queer history. Because uh, this week I'm going to talk to you about the secret language of Polari. Ooh, what's that? Have you have you heard of Polari? No, what is it? So Polari um, was a, a sort of a combination of lots of different elements of, of slang um, and... Uh, and things like that, and all kind of squashed together in, to make this uh, this language that was used um, by uh, predominantly by homosexuals mm. uh, throughout the 18th and 19th century um, to communicate. Oh wow! Yeah, and I had um, I sort of maybe heard about it, or um, yeah, I'd kind of I'd heard about it, and um, I'd never really kind of gone into the history of it, and so I, I decided to. I decided to. Um, yeah, I've I've never heard of this. Never in my life. I'm so excited. <laughs> so I'm so yeah, excited. Yeah. I, so hopefully we're going to have a bit of fun and um, I'm going to teach you some, uh, you know, obviously it's been locked down. A lot of people I know have been, um, one of the, the popular things to do were, was to learn a language. Oh yeah. Um, I didn't manage to learn a language, but I have learned a handful of uh, phrases in Polari. Very so. good, very good. <laughs> so Polari was actually associated with sort of gay pubs and um, like the Docklands in London as far back as the 18th century. So it's got quite a... Um, a rich history mm. um, and it gradually became commonly spoken by gay men and female impersonators during the 19th century as a way of conducting secret conversations in public oh um without being you know without alarming the straight people around them they do get alarmed yeah exactly and um at this time of course it was uh, illegal to be homosexual and openly gay people were heavily stigmatized mm. um so to have this language became a real uh, safety net um, for LGBT people to communicate with each other sort of undetected, which I think is fascinating in itself. Yeah. So an earlier form of the language uh, called Parliari was said to have made its way into London and port cities, spoken uh, by Mediterranean sailors and circus performers, you know, people who are travelling and kind of making their way across across the globe. But it's, it's often associated with, um, you know, the travelling community, buskers, beggars, sex workers, mm. you know, all these kind of people who are in this, um, you know, phase of uh, sort of migratory. Oh, yeah, like transient roles, you know, like moving through. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And that's how language, you know, that's how language kind of spreads. And with Paliari at its base, the Polari language was quickly adapted to include you know, a myriad of different words and phrases from influences like Cockney rhyming slang, which you'll know for like, you know, plates of meat would be feet. Oh, yeah. And back slang, back slang where you'd have rear for hair. Mm. And uh, that's still used, you know, in the East End of London today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you might see you might see somewhere called like the rear um, salon, which would be a hair salon, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as well as other other languages that were popular in London at the time, like Italian and French, Yiddish, Gaelic, things like that. Yeah. So it's this kind of uh, a kind of a mashup of all of these different phrases and kind of different slangs all kind of added together. Um, and it's quite it's quite something to listen to. Um, there's been a couple of kind of short films uh, written in Polari. There were some popular um, comedy uh, sketches and and radio plays that I'll talk about a little bit later. And there are words from Polari that we still use today uh, to, ref- to refer to queer people. Words that we've mentioned in this uh, podcast already. You know, we've talked about camp uh, and butch. Oh yeah. Um, and those are actually sort of um, part of uh, the Polari language. Oh um, really? Yeah. So it's so as with drag slang today um much of polari allowed speakers to uh, gossip quite freely about mutual friends or, or comment on the appearance of the people around them without being caught so, so obviously it was you know a very kind of it was a very important language because it was you know the safety net for gay people to communicate but also it was just a great way for you know female impersonators and and, and drag queens and um, and and gay people to kind of talk about whoever they're around yeah um, is a female impersonator like a, a- like what a, a drag queen or, or or a person who likes cross dressing or is it a, I don't understand that term. So in the sort of in the eighteenth and nineteenth century, it wasn't kind of it wasn't drag as we would sort of define oh, it today. Okay, so um, that was like an old word for drag. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, female impersonators wouldn't necessarily and I guess that would sort of it would kind of include um you know lots of different kinds of performers um people whether they were coming from the circus or whether they were more kind of you know sex workers so it's all it's all those kinds of people um and Polari was very much associated with them and with there were sort of two types there was kind of the lower class Polari and then there was the kind of 
theatre Polari, um, which was like found in a lot of like the pubs and and kind of theatre land and, and in the West End. Mm. So it was kind of East End versus West End. Yeah. So Polari was an underground, relatively like, relatively secret language until uh, there was a radio program called Round the Horn. Um, which sort of let it loose on the public in 1965. Uh, Though uh, at the time, many of those in the audience, you know, roaring with laughter, um, wouldn't actually have a clue what was being said in Mm. front of them, (laughs) which is is hilarious. Uh, So nevertheless, radio audiences uh, went absolutely wild for it uh, and found these openly camp characters um, to be incredibly entertaining, which unknowingly brought the language of Polari somewhat into the mainstream. And, you know, it used to be associated with the very theatrical sort of campness of the theatre, but it was quite, you know, quite daring to have two openly, openly gay characters, or you know, very camped up characters. To were be they? On... Were they? Oh, well, hang on. The camp, the characters were camp and gay, but the actors, I'm assuming, weren't. Yeah. So this was. Um, uh, so I, I tested this theory actually um, with uh, my own mother, um, who was a cis straight woman, mm-hmm. um, who said she'd never heard of Polari. But I played her this Kenneth Williams clip uh, where they where they speak. Polari and she said she remembered hearing the language on the television and on the radio uh, sort of in the background and just associated it quite innocently with comedy sketches so people just thought it was this absolutely made up language but sort of the joke was that the queer people in the room would be able to kind of hear a completely different conversation alongside um, what the straight people could hear. Mm. So Brian Cook, one of the writers on Round the Horn, sums up uh, quite nicely why audiences responded quite so well to the characters Julian and Sandy, that was uh, the characters in Round the Horn, um, and they usually play like out-of-work actors, and which would kind of explain the, the kind of camp personas they would adopt. Mm. Um, uh, what the writer says was, uh, when you're laughing with someone rather than at someone, they're less dangerous, they're not a threat to you, which I think hits the nail on the head. You know, if the if the audience are kind of think uh, think they're in on the joke, yeah, um, it's it's suddenly not dangerous for um, them to be you know, homosexuals. Homosexual. Uh... Yeah, yeah, and I think that because like that's kind of a thing that that um, queer people do as well. Even just in day to day life, is you 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 make uh, your campness a bit of a joke in order to be less mm. threatening. You know, I don't know. That's Definitely. what I, I like. I do it for sure. Um, is I try to just make myself less threatening as a queer person to, you know, the fragile straight people out there. I'm sure yeah. I'm sure I'm not giving them enough credit, but like <laughs> the kind of I uh, like the the place I grew up, I just I needed to. I needed to make myself less of a threat in order to survive. So it stuck with Yeah, me if you're for gonna be while. different, you sort of rely on this um this armour mm. of sorts. And a lot of that is you know, it's comedy, and um, the uh, so a lot of the joke is about uh, concealing queer signifiers and having the terms kind of fly under the radar of the straight audience. Mm. Um, and in this uh, in this video clip that I shared with my um, with my mum, there was uh, they sort of interviewed a lot of the the straight members of the audience afterwards, and they kind of just thought, oh, that was just you know a bit fun and a bit silly, yeah. um, and they had no idea that there was actually a, a kind of a dialogue happening. And there was so in the clip that I made my mum watch with me, Julian and Sandy, the characters, were playing two out of work uh, lawyers, actually deciding whether to take on a case. And they state, "We've got our own criminal practice that takes up most of our time," which is a sort of, sort of direct tongue in cheek jab at the fact that homosexuality was defined as a criminal practice. <laughs> so that's uh, so good. It's great, and you know this was on the radio. This was yeah, this was allowed to be on. Um, were the writers? gay like who came up who like did the research on this like someone had to have have an in right well yeah i mean so kenneth williams just became this this character of just his characters were known for being overtly camp and um kenneth williams is is a is a gay character it's gay guy sorry and oh yeah yeah okay okay. (laughs) and i think just the the freedom of you know portraying very camp very openly gay characters was quite revolutionary at the time and this was Mm. you know mainstream radio that was being broadcast you know across the country and and in people's homes yeah you can just imagine the kind of the the baby gays in the you know sat maybe at the the table with dear old mum and dad and and hearing this kind of language and being like you know either understanding or understanding later and just yeah. it's you know we don't have much to call our own but um polari apparently is one of them yeah. Uh, so even into the uh, 1970s, the language was largely undetected and complete gobbledygook to anyone who tuned in, who wasn't tuned in to listen out for it, uh, which meant that gay men could still use it as a way of deciphering if the person they were conversing with uh, was homosexual or not. So you might kind of throw in a line here or there if you were round a table. Yeah, say you were sort of at a, at a function um, or a hobnob kind of networking evening and, um, you know, everyone's, everyone's dressed the same and you wanted to kind of decipher whether somebody was gay or not, you might throw in throwing a little line here just to kind of 
pepper the air and and see what you're up against yeah yeah i think you know we do that i I, like i do that you know you reference some kind of obscure queer um queer reference from uh, a tv show or something and see if they pick it up like what you were saying about cryptids and um just just dropping in these little the signifiers and if you were talking about a cryptid it it might actually be sort of code for oh yeah yeah, yeah. with the queer (laughs) with the queer world yeah. So you might ask uh, a fellow homosexual, uh, do you think she's in the life, uh, referring to a passerby, and to be in the life meant to be gay, oh. which I think is really gorgeous. <laughs> it's a really positive, in the life. Uh, affirming yeah, term. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In the life. Do you think she's in the life? Um, and I think that's a really lovely term that uh, the Polari language has given uh, to the queer community. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so I've had a go at learning some of the phrases, um, if, you, if you would like to hear. Mm. Um, yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so um so nice to meet you is uh bono divado you uh bono divado you dolly eek uh dolly is uh is pretty eek is an abbreviation of ecaf which is the back slang for face so okay. bona is uh good and uh vada is sort of to see um so nice to meet you bono divado you that's so good <laughs> um also you know the double entendre of bona um, meaning good, uh, also sounding like boner, uh, is just brilliant <laughs> for a secret, a secret language between gay men. Um, you know, so they really, they've really thought it through. Um, you know, clutch the boner in your life and, and hold on to it for dear life, you know? Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> so we've got Dolly, Dolly Dish, Boner, Bevy, Crimper, Rhea, which I mentioned before, which is hair, yeah, yeah. ecaf or eek. So to introduce yourself to a friend uh, or, or a fellow a fellow queer, you might say, hello, ducky, or cooey. 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 Which I just kind oh, of associated yeah. with just kind of like, you know, my nan. Uh, cooey. cooey. Um, I always associate so that ele- with like, with campness, yeah, like a bit of like, yeah. a, you know, you do that little tiny wave with just your fingers. Cooey. Cooey. Yeah, hello, ducky. And, you know, it's all just... It's all making sense. I had no idea that half of these phrases that we still use are, um, you know, that we do associate with campness are actually traced back to uh, forms of Polari. Mm, that's so um, funny. Having a boner day of it, darling. Anyway, so here's a, here's a sentence that I really like. Of Nanti Jari, Nanti Latti, and what's worth Nanti Dos. I'm basically living off the national handbag. I might as well become a dilly boy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, which basically means I've got no food, no place to live, and what's worth no bed. I'm basically living on welfare... Yeah, I might as well become a male sex worker. Oh my god! I just love the idea that the, um, the national handbag is I, yeah, uh, like be, that being on the doll, and you can sort of you know it's so quick you can you can detect some words if you think about it. Yeah, you can um, work it out you, a bit, but not all of it. Yeah, and they have um so they use a lot of like mainly like a bit of French here and there, but mainly Italian. Um, and there's this common kind of theme of saying uh, Italian words but without the Italian accent. So to say goodbye, they would just they would say like. Um, well, they'd say tara, but they would also say arrivederci. Oh um, yeah. So like, no need to bother with the no, just with the arrivederci. Yeah, arrivederci, old mate. Yeah, arrivederci, ducky. Um, <laughs> I just think it's so wonderful, and the more you listen to it, it goes so quickly. But then once you've got the sort of dictionary up, I watched a couple of um, uh, clips from from films that were spoken entirely in Polari and I had to have this dictionary up with me um, and it's just so fast. Mm. And so you might be w- walking past and if you weren't tuned in um, or if you didn't know what some of the words, you would just be like, what are these fellas talking about yeah. on this park bench? Yeah, because on the park bench, so that's what I was going to say. I watched when I was like at uni, it was ages ago, I watched this sketch of these two guys sat, or like there's one guy sat on a park bench and someone else joins him and then mm. they have this kind of conversation or like one of the guys talks for ages in this kind of language that you can't really understand. And then the other guy yeah. gets uh, like eventually gets up and, and says, you're disgusting and leaves. And I wonder if that was like a sketch in Polari. Like. It is. So I think um, the film you're referring to is called um, Putting on the Dish. Yeah, I think I think is... that is it. I think I've seen it. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Putting on the Dish. If you want to if you want to look that up um, and watch it, Putting on the Dish is a film. Uh, yeah, it's a very short film. It's about um, it's just six or seven minutes. Um, and so Putting on the Dish, uh, dish would kind of be um, a phrase that you would use to talk about sort of an attractive man. Um, or an attractive person um, but also uh, dishes also mean your bum so washing the cleaning the dishes is sort of prepping your bum uh, <laughs> for um, 
an interaction. So there's again all this that you know the double entendre and all these kind of layered uh, oh, it's so words funny. and meaning. It's amazing, and um, you know slang has always always been a way of uh, identification and um, lexical innovation. Let's say, yeah. Um, and it's always kind of forming among the subcultures of society. I think that's fair to say about slang and, you know, the people who are using Polari, uh, you know, beggars and, and sex workers and people who, you know, kind of need this identifier mm. um, to kind of to communicate. And, yeah. And it's also, um, you know, checking who's safe, isn't it? Mm, yes. Yeah. The code words. Um, so obviously Polari was intended to be a private form of communication, uh, whereas a lot of the kind of queer slang we use today is much less secretive. Mm. Um, TV shows like RuPaul's Drag Race, for example, um, have made a lot of slang terms like w- way more accessible um, and sort of widely popular, you know, amongst um, amongst both straight and queer people. Yeah. yeah, straight people in my office would often talk about like throwing shade or or being fierce. Yeah, um, but uh, perhaps you know, perhaps they wouldn't dabble with uh, serving fish for example, or understand the nuances of uh, the question, how's your head? Or yeah. use chicken cutlets. Or about there being too much tuna in the audience. That was one I heard. Exactly, once. exactly. They wouldn't get that. <laughs> yeah, that stuff would just kind of brush way over. Um, and, you know, maybe that is more advanced slang and, and you know, maybe the reference history is, is just too acute for the untuned, non-queer ear, mm, yeah, shall yeah. we say. And there's always been... Um, so if we think about words that, are, um, that were once offensive slurs you know like dyke um sissy fag um, and even queer to some extent um you know how there has been a shift in the lgbtq community especially amongst amongst younger people mm. um to largely embrace and even reclaim these once derogatory terms and wear them as a badge of honor this is something we, we spoke about before in, in an episode but just how language you know evolves and changes and yeah becomes becomes a a powerful identifier yeah. rather than something that can you know hurt you you know wear it as your badge of honor like you say yeah definitely that's so that's so good i'm gonna go back and watch that clip actually that that short that you 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 said because i i remember thinking it was so funny at the time but i also had no idea what was being said <laughs> but i think i have a feeling that was there subtitles on it or not or did i just make that up there might have been occasionally if uh, if polari is mentioned in um kind of modern day modern films it, it usually is used with subtitles yeah oh it's, it's so good it's so funny so i kind of i was i was thinking about polari and i was um thinking about how it's um how slang has changed and um, what you know what's different about the way the performers and queer people communicate today and the main difference i would say is that uh, the secrecy seems mm. to have been lost and maybe that is just because we are uh, we are more comfortable you know it, it, homosexuality was decriminalized and you know we are largely free now in in 2020 in, britain and yeah. um, you know i think f- for me like drag slang is definitely about being heard it's not about kind of secretly chatting to your mates it's about being heard and mm. being outrageous and flamboyant and with shows like rupaul's drag race propelling the very grand performative nature of uh, drag queen culture into the mainstream, uh, the highly this highly coded language is um, quite commonplace around the world. Yeah. Um, I wonder also, like, we're, we're very go- globalised now, especially with, like, social media and things like that, that, yeah. you know, I see, I see a lot of stuff on my feed from, like, the USA, mm-hmm. like, American queer communities, which do, you know, in, in many ways, I'm sure, operate very differently to UK queer communities. And yet I have an insight through these social media platforms that I wouldn't normally mm. have. And I think that maybe that's bridging a bit of the language gap between uh, of needing uh, a kind of secretive way to identify each other, because actually we're just much more globalised as a community um, that we can identify each other more easily. Or we don't even, like you said, we're, we're less, less people need to hide now than they used to. Mm. Yeah. And it's just... Um, um, it is interesting knowing that there is all this history um, to, um, you know, an etymology with the words. Um, so if you think about the word uh, yas, yeah. um, yas, yes. uh, that, that, so the word yas uh, made its way into the Oxford dictionaries in 2017. Whoa. And obviously it's usually paired with, um, followed by queen, so like yas queen and uh, queer eye. Um, mm. You've got um, 
you know, the presenters are always going to be dropping in Yas and Yas Queen. Um, and apparently the more A's you have in the word uh, determine the level of excitement from the speaker. <laughs> so like online and in memes, yeah. I had this colleague that I used to work with who, um, hopefully she never hears this, but she probably won't listen. But she thought that Yas <laughs> was like a northern person thing. And I was like, what, what are you on about that? It's such a gay drag queen thing. And she was like, no, no, I think it's a northern thing. And I was like, you stop it. Stop taking our stuff. Yeah, I mean, so do you, yeah, so deeper than that, um, oh, there's such a yeah. There's, I mean, that's a whole different point, isn't it? About um, who can who can use these words, and and is it kind of you know, are you stealing it or are you? Well, it's fine if they if they actually know where it came from. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so so deeper than that, like yeah, uh, the word yes uh, is um, a vital word of affirmation used um, by an extremely originally used by an extremely marginalised community, if mm. you think about um, the queer, black, uh, Latinx uh, people that you see in, you know, the documentary Paris is Burning, oh, um, yeah. existing in these underground and urban spaces of Manhattan, often living in severe poverty um, at the height of the AIDS epidemic. Like, that's where that word came from. Mm-hmm. It didn't come from, you know, a white woman, you know, handing in, handing in a brief on time and, and being like, yeah, it's clean. Yeah. It's... It has a deeper it was root. derived yeah, from yeah. yeah, it was derived from you know ballroom culture, yeah. ball culture in the underground, um, you know queer queer black and brown spaces. So there's a lot of history attached to that word mm. uh, that a lot of straight people might not necessarily be aware of, and obviously that you know brings into question appropriation and yeah. you know, language and yeah, I think um, um, it's difficult though, isn't it? Because you you kind of if we want our like queer culture to be recognised and accepted more, we're going to have to accept that uh, non queer people are going to want to engage in it because the more we become more mainstream and more acceptable the more accessible it is to them as well and so they want to be part of it Mm. there is you know there's a trade-off we can't just protect everything to be only ours and not allowed to be used by anybody else because that means that we're still isolating ourselves but there is still a desire you know you do still want people to at least show a bit of respect for the fact that it did come from deep oppression it didn't just come Mm. from like a fun uh activity where we just all decided to say this one thing like it came from pain and it came from hard work and like needing to affirm each other because no one else would. Yeah. 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 It's about building each other up, isn't it? And yeah, I think obviously there is far less of a, far less of a a need now um, to conceal your homosexuality in quite the same way. And so I think Polari, you know, it did die out um, and it is seen as somewhat of a lost language now, even though there may be phrases we, we still, um, we still use in our vocabulary. Um, so I say, you know, if we do go into another lockdown um, and you find yourself looking for a new language to learn, perhaps consider uncovering the Eclectic Dictionary of Polari. Let's uh, let's petition Duolingo to get it on there. <laughs> yeah, retrace uh, some historical queer lexicon. Exactly. Um, exactly. I think that would be amazing, you know, to learn to learn the phrases. I had such a I had such a laugh. Um, talking to my mum and um, she was just absolutely like giggling at me because. <laughs> For her, it sounds completely bizarre, um, and I would sort of say I would say words to her, and she would just she would just be like, I I love the word for for legs, which is lallies. Um, <laughs> you've got like uh, Omi Poloni, which is a sort of effeminate man or a gay man. Oh, um, that's so good. It's just um, it's just great. Um, yeah, I love it. It's so great. I love I love to be in the life, and I love that you might say, "Oh, do you think she's in the life?" Yeah, um, and and things we do today, like referring to yourself in the third person, referring to everybody as she. Oh um, yeah, oh, you know, regardless of their yeah of your gender, be like. I'm so pleased that we're in the life, Daisy. It's this is the place to be. This is the place to be. I am so pleased we're in the life. Um, so I guess that's it. That's it for me. Um, Tara Ducky, I would say. Uh, Arrivederci. Don't know when I'm going to see you next. Yeah, <laughs> Arrivederci to you too. Yeah, <laughs> no, that was amazing. Thank you so much, Daisy. That was absolutely fascinating and um yeah i'll put the i'll put the the link in for um yeah yeah put the link in put the link in the in the serving, show notes that'll be it really serving good. the dish putting on the dish putting put, on the putting dish putting on the beef all right all right Tiraduk. see you later <laughs> bye guys thanks Bye-bye. for listening